0: This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. A guest speaker is featured on this message. More information is on our website. Great to be together. I want to take just a brief moment here and introduce our preacher. We have a guest preacher today, and I'm excited about that. And today we have with us Carlos Contreras. I'm practically bilingual. I mean, did you hear that? I'm virtually bilingual. But Carlos and his wife, Kenna, are with us. Uh, Carlos leads our sister church in um, Juarez, Mexico. And uh, that's on the border, uh, across the border from um, El Paso. Or El Paso is across the border from him. Depends on what, uh, what side you're looking at, I suppose. But uh, anyway, I, he, it's a, just a gift to have him here. You may know his, uh, his daughter and son-in-law, uh, Monica and Milton, are in our church. And he is here because they just had a baby a week ago, their second son. And uh, so they're here visiting their grandson. Excellent. So... Um, Being an opportunist, I thought if he's here visiting his grandson, let's put him to work and uh, have him speak to us. Um, Carlos has been at his church there in Juarez, I think, like over 30 years or something like that you've been there, and working on the staff of that church for 20-plus years or so, um, and he now leads uh, that church. And so I've known him, um, well, probably most of the time you've served in that church, we've probably known each other 20 years or so, and I've been able to interact with Carlos and Kenna at various... uh, uh... various conferences and times together i've been in his church i've been there um... their church. We have uh, served on a regional team together at one point, so we've we've had history, and uh, that's why I was excited to have him in since he was in to preach to us today. Carlos, there's many things I appreciate about you. Um, I have always benefited for your heart for mission. Uh, You have a heart for church planting, and uh, that's been stimulating to me over the years as I have uh, interacted with you. You're a visionary. Um, You're a man of wisdom, Uh, a high, high view of God's scripture, a love for God's people. Uh, you're a careful thinker theologically, biblically. So when I'm with you, I feel like it's iron sharpens iron. I grow and learn. And so I'm always grateful to be with you, um, and to interact with you. But one of the things I most appreciate about, and which I even asked him if he would talk about to some degree as what, however it would work out today was that he has led his church through a severe trial. Um, the, the city of uh, Juarez has had tremendous uh, violence. A matter of fact, a few years ago, uh, I think Time magazine called it the most dangerous city in the Western Hemisphere um, because of the drug war, and uh, which has spilled over beyond the cartels into innocent citizens being killed. Uh, many uh, police officers, I don't know numbers, but many, over 100, I don't know, but many killed in the line of duty. And so it has been a season where people, regular citizens, uh, have feared for their lives. And uh, so Carlos has been on point to lead a church through the fear and the anxiety that any of us would feel if we walked out here and wondered at lunch today if somebody's going to walk in and shoot the place up, which literally has happened. And so can you imagine if that's what was waiting you at lunch? So he's led his church through a time of fear and anxiety, but he's led them to trust God, and he's led them to continue in the mission. And that's what I love, not backing up or hiding, but pursuing, seeing this as a gospel opportunity. So thank you for your leadership uh, in that, Carlos. Uh, Yesterday, before he comes yesterday, he told me, um, I don't preach in English much. I mean, he speaks flawless English, but he said, I don't don't preach in English much. It's been a year since I preached in English, and it's been at least that long since I preached in Spanish. But um, so, he was telling me that. So I just thought, brother, he is here. And then I started feeling bad. I mean, he is here visiting his family, seeing his grandson. And he's got to think and prepare a message in English, which he hasn't done, rarely does, hasn't done in a year. So I should feel bad about asking you to do that, but I don't. So would you come and preach? And let's welcome Carlos as he comes to bring God's word.
1: Uh, I was telling my wife in the car that I know my experience that I should not preach when I am on vacation. But I wish I would have known that you guys were getting ready to get into a party mode because uh, Mexicans, I mean, our area of expertise, I mean, theologically is party, you know, so I think I could have served you better by teaching on partying than what what I'm doing now. Yeah, I can always change. Well, we, we did have a major party last weekend. We, we do our, our, um, our summer um, kickoff party with a big, big um, Dia de Campo, I don't know, what, you, what do you call that, a Dia de Campo is a, um, uh, a picnic. Picnic. picnic, right, 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 the picnic, and we do a carne asada contest, I mean, it's just, I mean, just imagine Mexicans in a huge, I mean, almost 600 people in a picnic, the amount of food was, was outrageous. Yeah, but we we all had a great great time, and we do that. And I would encourage you to really uh, live it up on this Fourth of July, because uh, as a church, one of the things that we've learned—I'm not going to talk about it today—but one of the things that we so appreciate is, is being able to go through things together and making just doing life together. Just doing—I mean, we are a family. We're God's people. We're going to spend eternity together. And with some, uh, sometimes I, I feel we need to encourage the church to to really just just uh, just party and just enjoy each other and, and laugh and and play. And we do this twice. We do a, a a big Christmas time, and we do it in the summer, and then we do kind of regular, smaller times every weekend in the mid in the middle. Anyway. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray first. This is, um, this is a difficult message for me to do uh, because there's so many things I can talk about and I, I need to choose appropriately which things I believe are the ones that would benefit you. And I was sitting there thinking, God, I, I could talk about so many things. Uh, you've been good to us and you've taught us much, but uh, I need God's wisdom as to how to serve you and and uh, i'll pray first and then and then we'll we'll uh, introduce the message and then we'll read a little bit of scripture from uh from the book of Joel so if you ah uh, please pray with me father we we are so grateful for your goodness grateful that throughout the world throughout the world lord people are gathering today because of you and when you look at us, you look at your children, you look at your people, you don't look at the nations, you don't look at the different languages, color of skins, dress codes, you look at your children. Yes. And we thank you that you are right now looking at us. And I pray, Lord, that you will bless us, that you will help us. That you will teach us, encourage us, and challenge us. That you will bring conviction, and you'll bring instruction, and that you will edify your church today. I pray not just for this church, but the church back in Juarez, Lord. As they also gather to open up the scriptures and learn from your, from your words what you want your church to learn. Father, I pray that you will help me and will give me wisdom and prophetic leading so that I may serve this church and in some way contribute to what Craig and his team have done here in building up your people according to your purposes. Help me, Lord. And give, us, give us, Lord, illumination as we, we read some of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Well as Craig was saying I am I do want to speak on this theme because what we have lived as as a church as a city as a nation is very significant I do not want to minimize having lived uh, in it for four and a half years now i don 't want to minimize what is going on because in doing so, I would do a disservice to the people have, that have paid a significant price or have suffered in significant ways in living through it. Um, about a year and a half ago, uh, the average death rate in Juarez peaked at around eleven to twelve. People a day. Um, that is, that comes out to about 4,000 people a year. So we've been at it for four and a half years, almost five. So we're talking about, you know, over 10,000 people that have been murdered violently in the city. That's just murders. Um, that means that in Juarez, there isn't anybody now that in some way hasn't been touched by the violence. I I mean I don't know the statistics, the number of families affected. Somebody said that fifty thousand families have gone through through uh como se dice duelo? You know, the the loss of a dear one um the number of orphans, the number of of um people that have suffered is significant. The, the violence, as, as Craig mentioned, was started with one day, specifically one day uh, it started, because somebody gave the order, we'll fight, and it's going to happen. Uh, at the beginning, it was between the cartels. As it escalated, the cartels started bringing in gunmen from other parts of the country. And these gunmen... Um, you know they're used to they're criminals they're gun they're powerful because they they're heavily armed they they have an enormous gun power um, so they started uh, kidnapping people they started robbing they st- they would stop you in your car with guns to take your car uh, if you resisted they will kill you right there um, they would go into your home and with guns and rob everything you had there. If you resisted, they will kill you right there. It was, it was um, a, a situation where everybody sort of felt powerless because at the same time that that was happening, uh, the, the police department was being shaken down and was being um, uh, purged, and that weakened the police department strongly. So the army came in, and the army are not police, and they're not local, and the federal police came in. So we had a military kind of siege over the city uh, with people with machine guns driving around our neighborhoods, and, um, which, you know, you didn't know if they were going to shoot somebody. I mean, you stop, stop signing these trucks which park right next to you in the stoplight with these guys they're all dressed in black. They have masks and they have helmets and machine guns. And you don't know. I mean, you're asking them, can you point that thing another, you know, another direction? Uh, it was very scary. Uh, what happened was that because of the crime, because of these people coming into restaurants and killing people that were eating there because of the war, uh, or because of extortion, carrying out extortion threats. Uh, is if you don't pay a certain amount of money a week, we'll come in and we'll burn the place down and we'll kill everyone here, and they did it. Uh, so business started shutting down, and estimated right now that around 150 to 200,000 people fled the city. That means that about 25% of all businesses, 25% of all homes were, were vacated in the city. So unemployment... Uh, economic crisis uh, factories shutting down it just compounded you know the perfect storm Uh, the city was 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 living Um, as as he said also the police we came down I think we had a police force around 1500 policemen I think it dwindled down to a point where there were less than 300 police in the city So that attracted more criminals because you could do anything in Juarez. There wasn't anybody to resist you. All you had to do was be careful with the soldiers that were patrolling the city, but because they weren't police, they weren't investigating anything. Um, I remember specifically about a year ago that. It was very alarming. Some people came in from out of the country and analyzed the situation. They gave Juarez six months to live. They said in six months, the city, if not something changes, the city is going to collapse. And basically, cartels are going to take over and it's going to be controlled by criminal uh, organizations. Um, So that brings a lot of... Hopelessness, despair. Population was was if you could get out, you you would get out. Um, so that's where we were at as a church. By God' grace, God's grace, it didn't happen. God heard our prayers. Change did come. Things started improving, and we survived, and we are still surviving. Yesterday was a bad day in Juarez. Yesterday, about eight people were killed in Juarez. There are good days where no one is killed in Juarez. There are good days when one or two people are killed. Um, and there's cases, just hundreds of stories I can say that are are so sad and so terrible that you can you. Can, I mean, it's just it's just terrible. But anyway, I could come in and tell you what the church has learned through all of this. But I think to really help you and serve you, the the main thing that I would like to share is why, why did it happen? What was God doing? Why did God allow this to happen to our city? Because, I mean, we could, you say, well, you know, when there's difficulties and let's, let's learn from that and let's grow. But, but why was this thing happening? Could this thing happen someplace else? Is this God permitting this to happen? Is this God ordaining this to happen? Is this, I mean, did God lose control of this thing? I mean, what is going on? So, in, in 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 attempting to answer this question, we started really soon. I mean, we would meet together with other pastors. We started praying as a church. We would pray. Uh, the question is, what what do we pray for? And we started praying. Let's pray for this to stop. The more we prayed, the worse it got. Well, God, what are you doing? Show us. It took about six months to a year for us to pray, Lord. Tell us what to do and how to respond. We're not going to pray stop because it's obvious you're allowing this to happen. So tell us what you're doing and how we are to respond. And that's when we started reading the scriptures in a different way. We started seeking what would God be doing in the midst of all of this violence and terrible things that are happening in our city. And we went through a series in this Minor Prophets in the book of Joel. If you want to open your, your Bible in the book of Joel, the second uh, minor prophet right after Hosea. Uh, and I do want to say this, that they are minor prophets, but they're not less important than the big prophets. Okay, they're just, they, they wrote little books. Okay, that's why they're minor. Not because they're less important, and um, Joel is a, it's a little book. It's only it's only three chapters, and it's it's a it's a unique book in the sense that we don't know who Joel was, just that he was the son of this guy Pethuel, Pethuel or whatever. However, you say this in Spanish is easier to read than English, but we don't know when he wrote this book. We don't know what he was referring to. We don't know exactly what the events here described were, but they're very important. And the book of Joel starts with a plague. God is announcing a plague over Israel, over, in fact, Judah, Uh, a plague of locusts. And you guys here are probably familiar with them. They are Agricultural plague, they, when the locusts come, nothing survives. They will eat everything that is live green. They will totally destroy. And that's what he describes them here. But he is describing the locusts in chapter one as an army, a faithful army that he is commissioning to come and destroy the land. And he's doing that specifically because he wants his people to grieve, to repent, to recognize their sin, to lament and the ministers and the priests and the leaders of the country to recognize that they are dependent on God and they have walked away from God and they need to come back to God. That's basically chapter 1. He's describing. I'm sending this, and uh, you know, he 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 talks about this prophet as something terrible that he's never done. I want you here. Who who has heard about this? That that I'm going to send this locust army of locusts into my own country, into my own people. Then in chapter two, we see the reason why he's sending the locust. In chapter two, he talks about a call to repentance. He talks about, about his desire for the people to then turn to him. So in chapter 2, for example, verse 12, he says, Even now this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. For he is com- gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich to faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. That's the purpose of this judgment of God upon His own people. He wants them to repent and He promises that if they do, He's going to respond. And, and there's some beautiful words in the book of Joel, how He's going to restore their fields and their, and their blessing and their provision. And throughout that time, He was going to su- sustain them and help them while they went through the plague. When everything dies, I mean, you have to wait until it grows back. But God sustained them and says, "I will return. I will, I will restore what the locust ate." But most importantly, in, in the in the last part of, the, of chapter two, He promises something that the Apostle Peter mentioned in the Book of Acts. He says, "And I will send my Spirit." And I will bless you. I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. On verse 28. He says, when, "When, Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams. And your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. And we know that he was talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost. So, So this prophecy of this plague and the call to repentance Lord in it, the Lord in his mind was thinking what he was going to do when Jesus came and when, he, and when, when the sin was of the country was going to be uh, taken care of and then he was going to pour out a bigger blessing the blessing of the Holy Spirit over his people over his church so we started reading these things and we said wow uh, God wants repentance so one of the first things we need to do is that when this judgment comes and these difficult times comes and, and God allows us to suffer, He wants us to repent. He wants us to humble ourselves. He wants us to fast and pray and turn back to God. But then we read chapter 3. And in chapter 3, He talked about the day of the Lord, which is the end times the day when he will come and he will judge all nations. And he talks about specific nations that he, uh, he is, and I'm not even going to even read them in chapter 3, verse 4. He talks about these local nations there that he is going to judge immediately. And then he talks about all the other nations that are going to stand before him and he is going to judge them eventually. And that started us thinking in a little different way. God challenges the nations to come before Him, to stand before Him so that He can pronounce judgment on them. And we started wondering, I wonder if, if God is calling Mexico to attention. I wonder if God is saying, Hey, Mexico, I, I, I have something against you. And I'm going to allow this to happen so that I can get your attention. Because you've been a wicked and sinful nation and you need to turn to me. We had never thought about that. And I'm going to read a section on Joel chapter 3. And, and you will see this picture of God talking to the nations to come. He's challenging them to respond to His judgment. Chapter 3, verse 9, I'm going to read from the ESV. He says, Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior, or the Bible say, I am strong. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations." Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Sion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. What we considered when we studied this book and studied other books like the book of Habakkuk, is could God actually be answering our prayers for our nation by bringing judgment to our nation now rather than later? May this, could this be an actual act of grace that... 50,000, 60,000 people have died violently rather than destroy the 130 million that we are currently at this value of decision. These multitudes, they're going to stand there and one of the misconceptions is that what he's referring here is that these people have to make a decision. And you no, know, the guy, or I'm sorry, the guy, I don't speak in English very the The person that needs to make the decision is actually God. He's making a decision about what he's going to do with the nations. The valley of Jehoshaphat is the valley of judgment. That, what, that's what Jehoshaphat means God as judge. He is making a decision. He's going to make a decision about the nations. And as he does, we see this picture of him judging his own people with locusts. And then saying, but I will keep you. And if you repent, I will bless you and restore you. And eventually, I will pour out my spirit upon you. So this whole picture, if you take the whole book of Joel, then you have this picture of God involved in the history of not just His church, but the history of the nations. And bringing things and allowing things to, and sending armies. When you read Joel, he describes the, the locusts as an army. He says, they are faithful. They don't, they don't move around. I mean, they don't stop for, for breaks they go and they do whatever I order. But if you repent, I will send them to the ocean. They're all going to die. His, his judgment had an intention. His intention was grace through repentance. And if you've, like me, I mean, if you've gone through seasons of correction from God where God has disciplined you or corrected you, you, you know that repentance is sweet. It's one of the things I, I t- tell people in the church repentance is sweet. It always brings grace. So, the way I, I read this book by a man that's, that said, God, the Bible is about this. God brings grace through judgment. And isn't that true in the gospel? We are the beneficiaries of the grace of Jesus Christ. Because God brought judgment upon Jesus Christ. He suffered the most violent death so that we could enjoy His grace. God brings grace through judgment. So, we're in Juarez and it certainly feels like we are the victims of an invading army. I mean... I mean, talking about, it, it, to a point, there was, there was estimations that there were something like 8,000 of these gunmen in the city. Imagine, these, these people have AK-47s so that with very few bullets they can destroy you and kill you. One of the most tragic stories I was telling, reminding Milton and... And, and Monica uh, yesterday I said it was so tragic that that the the the, the people we, we, don't, we don't realize how, how things can change in, in a minute there was a story close to where we used to live there was this neighborhood and and the when when 9-11 happened what happened was that the drugs that were coming through Juarez they weren't staying in Juarez they are just coming through Juarez stopped in Juarez and so these, these cartels, they had all these drugs. Now, what to do? With, well, let's start giving them away and getting people in Juarez involved in drugs. So crystal meth started making the scene, and crystal meth makes you crazy. And it's cheap. So uh, many of these crimes were being done by addicts. And uh, there was a story about this, 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 this family... In just a middle class, lower middle class neighborhood, Um, these two young men uh, were awoken in the middle of the night as they heard uh, noise outside. They they came out and they saw this this young man breaking into the car to steal the battery of the car. The reason they steal the battery of the car is they can get about ten dollars, twelve dollars for a battery. That's enough for one fix. So they came out, and they tried to run him off. They were two young men, like 22 and 20 years old. The two only children of this single mom. They went out. He had a gun. Shoots them both. Nine millimeter gun. Both are dead. For $12. And like that, there's hundreds of stories. Why? Because now drug addicts there's so many guns. There's so many I mean, they're laying around I don't I mean they armed the the gangs, they armed the drug addicts, they armed they recruited these people to fight their war and now they're killing people because they gave them guns. How do you respond, Lord, is this judgment? Why are you allowing this, Lord? Are you behind this? Could you have ordained this? So we as a church are having to answer the question because we need to pray and we don't know how to pray. But when we see Joel, we see God sometimes allows terrible things to happen to avoid Worse things to happen, and so we started praying differently. Rather than say, "Lord, take it away," we started praying, "Lord, have mercy in the midst of your wrath," which is a prayer that Habakkuk made when he was addressing same issues. Lord, have mercy in your judgment, Lord have mercy as you justly bring correction and and judgment to this wicked nation and we are Mexicans and we are participating and this is our city and we are we are guilty before you lord the only difference between them with the guns and us inside of the church is that we have been the beneficiaries of your grace apart from your grace we would be outside with the guns killing people so have mercy Have mercy in the midst of your judgment. And that's what we started praying. Because we knew that our sovereign God wasn't asleep. He was looking at these things happening in our city. And He was letting it happen. So we needed to find a way. To make sense out of this. And it didn't make any sense unless God had a purpose in allowing it to happen. And the only thing that we could find that that make any sense with the revelation of Scripture is that if He was allowing this to happen, was because He was calling the nation and the city to repentance. And the church had to lead the way in that. And we needed to see the possibility of a graceful God, of a loving God, that would allow things to happen that are terrible. To stimulate a response in the people. So, when we saw that, everything changed in us. Because we had hope. If He was involved, we had hope. See? Even if it was judgment. Like in Joel. Joel was a book that was a terrible book for them to read. For, for Israel to read. For Judah to read. But he had hope for his people. As I read here at the end of the part of that um, verse, verse uh, um, 17. Then you will know that I am Yahweh your God who dwells in Zion my holy mountain Jerusalem will be holy and foreigners will never overrun it again. And then in verse 18 says in that day the mountains will drip drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk all the streams of Judah will flow with water and a spring will issue from the Lord's house watering the valley of the acacias. So God was saying I, I I'm going to respond even though there's judgment, I will respond, and I will bring blessing to the people from me, a stream will flow out, it will a picture of his holy Spirit. I will be with you, I will be in you, I will be with you forever. My people will have hope. So what then, if with this picture in my in our minds, if God was bringing judgment, what then did we learn? And I want to address some, some points, some more specific points. I've chosen these ones because I think they, they can be relevant to you. The first thing is that if God was bringing judgment, we needed to trust Him. We needed to trust Him, but we needed to trust Him in a different way. We needed to trust Him with the fear of the Lord. Okay? rather than fearing what was happening. We need to redirect our fear from the local situation to fearing God, who is a judge, who sees everything that we do and can have the power to send an army in. Okay? So we needed to trust the Lord. Verse 16 says, "...the Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake." So we reviewed are we quaking as a church because there's people that can kill us outside, or are we quaking because our Lord is roaring from His mountain? And you know, our Lord can roar. He is not just this nice gentleman, you know, this nice fuzzy God. He can roar, and when He roars, it shakes and it quakes. But He wants us to quake. He wants us to shake. One of the things that, you know, when we talk about the fear of the Lord in the churches, in Christian churches, we always kind of pass through it and we kind of put it aside and say, well, yeah, the fear of the Lord, you know, it's sort of like reverence. Because you're not to be afraid of God. He doesn't want you to be afraid. He's your dad. He's your daddy. You don't, you're not afraid of your daddy. But you know... He does want us to fear. He does want us to to quake because it's appropriate. Because He's he's fearsome. He he can send in an army and He can allow and He's going to judge the nations and He's going to destroy the world. So we should fear this amazing God. We should fear Him, not man. Fearing God... You know, especially knowing that he's allowing this is, to, is, is very easy. <laughs> we learned to fear God because it was easy to say, Lord, if you're sovereign and this is happening, then you, you're allowing it. If not ordaining it, at least you're allowing it. So we should redirect our focus rather than say, wow, this is terrible, let's, the police take care of it. We should turn around and fear the Lord because it's not a criminal problem it's not a police problem it's not a government problem it's not a military problem it's a moral problem. If God is involved it's a moral problem. So we redirect and we realize we are in the hands of our God. And we need to trust this fearsome God that He will carry out His purposes, and He will preserve His church and His people because of of His grace and His love. Fearing God means that you realize that He is powerful and He controls everything and you are very, very weak. And you know, the Bible says, in the book of Isaiah and and the Psalms and many other parts, that we are like grass. When He compares people to Himself, He says... You guys are like grass. You're there and then you're not. And when you're in Juarez, you realize you are there and maybe tomorrow you are not. When, when this thing wasn't happening, we didn't realize we were grass. When this thing was happening in the city, we realized we are certainly grass. The, one of the hardest things I had to do was tell my wife... What to do in case I was kidnapped? What to do if somebody wanted to, at gunpoint, steal her car? Or if she was kidnapped? Or if I was killed? It's hard. It's very hard. But you know what? The truth that we are here now and tomorrow would disappear. It's true in Juarez. And it's true in Dallas. And yet we we felt, you know, like, hey, it's dangerous to live in Juarez. It's, and you are in the hands of God. He can call you up anytime. Anytime. Hey, you over here. And you're there. <laughs> and we don't live that way. We figure, hey, we're going to be here for at least, you know, 20 more years. Maybe you... Kids, you know, you say, "Well, at least fifty more years or something like that." You, we wouldn't say that in Juarez, but we shouldn't say it any place because the Bible says that we are—we should seek the wisdom to know how weak we are and how dependent we are on God's will. That we live today only by God's grace, and we hear tomorrow because God wills it. That—that that is the fear of the Lord. That is knowing that we are our life is is dependent on Him, not on our own strength, and not on our country where we live, and not because we're healthy, and not because we eat organic food and drink organic milk, which tastes funny. <laughs> give me give me the normal one with the chemicals or whatever you know. Um. I don't think I'm going to be drinking milk in heaven, you know, so I might as well drink it here. We drink wine over there. (laughs) Okay, so the first thing is we need to trust God, but trust God in the fear of the Lord. And I want to ask you, is there healthy fear in your life living in Dallas? Saying, I've got it good here. But are you aware that Almighty God is there looking at you and that you are alive because He actually ordained it today that you should be here alive listening to me? Second thing, second point. We realize God wanted us to trust Him as a refuge wanted us to trust him as a refuge and strength the second part of verse 16 says but the lord is a refuge to his people a stronghold to the people of israel this was probably my favorite part of joel during this time if god was bringing judgment to our country if god was allowing this to happen then my question lord and what is going to happen with your people the answer of the Lord I am the refuge. Tell them to refuge to come seek refuge in me. And that's the gospel. Jesus Christ is our refuge from God's wrath. We hide in Christ so that the wrath of God doesn't come upon us. So if God was doing anything in our country, if he was allowing these armies to come in, then we seek refuge in him. So when when people, you know, I've I've traveled, and uh, people around the world, they know about Juarez. Everybody knows about Juarez. At one point it was said it's the most dangerous city, western hemisphere of the whole world. There were more people being killed in Juarez daily than in Afghanistan and Iraq put together. Um, and they say, Wow, I, we so admire you guys for your faith in the midst of trial. I said, There's no merit in having faith when you have no choice. There's no merit in finding refuge in Christ when you can find refuge no place else. We have no hope in our government. We had no hope with our police. We had no hope in our homes. You know, people in our own neighborhood, people went in and they put, uh, not barbed wire, but electrified fence around our properties. And they put those video cameras, you know, surveillance cameras, and guards, and people, they, they, they're growing poor by paying all these bodyguards, and people bought these uh, um, bulletproof cars. And there's now... Hundreds of bulletproof cars in the city. That's, there's no security in that. We know that. Because they were coming in. I mean, the electric. I mean, what if. We, we live in these fenced communities. These guys will come in. Like, imagine two suburbans. 12 people will step out of it with machine guns. One guard with a little spray. What is he going to do? This, this is the all they have to do is says, you go into the bathroom, lock the door, come out tomorrow, okay? Yes, sir. And they go in. And this is the house. Yeah, break the door down. Where's the guy? He's sleeping over there. Take him. And kill him. There's no, there's no. How do you how do you protect yourself against that? Well, let's get the army in there. But you can't have an an army patrol in every neighborhood, in every street corner? That doesn't exist. So where do you put your refuge? I remember one lady specifically, I, I, I can't get this out of my mind, she, was, she, she said this to me, oh, you know, Carlos, when I go to El Paso, as soon as I cross the border, you know, El Paso is the safest city in the United States, and it's just across the border, across the bridge, from Juarez. As soon as I cross the bridge, I just relax. I feel so safe. I said, what that is the most stupid thing I've ever heard. (laughs) So you actually feel safe because you're in another country? You feel safe because there's lots more cops here? So what does God say? When he hears you say those things. So what? I'm nothing here? I can't take care of you? You need to be safe? Let's move the church to El Paso. Then my people will be safe because I can't take care of them in Juarez. It's nonsense. If we are to be safe, it's because we are in the hands of God and He is our refuge. And He protects His people which He is capable of doing. No government... No army, no military. And I'm, Memorial Day, I know I realize that. Biggest, strongest, most you know, powerful army in the world. No match for Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. I'd rather, I put my bed, God will protect me, than the army. But then, something happened. We did experience amazing testimonies of people facing death and guns didn't operate people surviving in the midst of gunfire people surviving terrible situations but then something happened when we were so happy yes the church in the midst of trial look what is happening God is keeping us and then one of the brothers was kidnapped and murdered One of the, the men in our church, and then others, started experiencing significant situations. About a few weeks later, a man was shot outside of our church building as he was dropping off kids to school. Months later, the dad of one of the kids in our school, they, we have a day school. And there's other Christians there, not just church people, not just our church folks. He, he he went. He took his son to the doctor. As he was leaving the doctor's office, some gunmen tried to kidnap his little son, twelve or thirteen or something like that. What do you do when you're a dad and they're trying to take your son? Uh, the dad did what was natural. He fought. So they killed the dad. They left the son there. What does that do when a believer suffers like that and you're thinking, hey, God was our refuge. So our faith has to grow. Will we have faith and trust God even if He allows us to experience what the world is experiencing the locust came and affected everyone affected his his people will we still trust if some of us die will we still trust if there's specific threats directed specifically to the church if our secretaries receptionists you know <laughs> You know, usually in the churches, the receptionist is a nice old lady, you know, and she's just so sweet and she answers the phone. What happens when she answers the phone and says, Is the pastor there? No, he's out of town. I know he's there. Tell him I want to talk to him. If he doesn't talk to me, I mean, we're going to kill everyone. Are we still going to trust? Are we still going to have church that Sunday? And the answer is, God is our refuge. We must. We had no choice. We either believed what was said, or we didn't. We either believe Psalm 91 that says, God is our refuge and our strength. We will trust in Him, and nothing will happen to us. And the worst thing that can happen to us is that we get killed. So we're going to trust Him. Craig said, "You know, right now we we have it good. Uh, We we can worship God because He takes care of our soul. It's good with our souls. For a Christian, that should be enough." But I met a lot of Christians that would say, "Carlos, we're praying for you," and I would say, "Well, brother, we're always there. You can always we're always welcome to come." I said, "No, it's too dangerous." So the powerful God that's a refuge is okay for a Mexican to have, but it's not okay for somebody that lives outside of Juarez. He's not enough for them. Brothers, I I do want to challenge you because I do know that Americans have this thing about safety. You want to feel safe. There's no safety in this world. You can't be safe. It's a myth. We're not, you're not safe because you live in Frisco or Dallas or Plano or whatever. You are only safe in the hands of the Lord. And if you're not a believer here, if you've never placed your trust on God, you're not safe. Because God Almighty is would be your enemy. That's the unsafest place to be. You want to be on the other side, on his good side. <laughs> you don't want to be there in the valley of decision when he's making a decision about your life. So the only safe place to be is when, when your life is placed in the hands of the Lord. Say, Lord, I, I trust you with my life. May, you, may your will be done in my life. And if your will is, come over here tomorrow, may your will be done, not mine. That's trusting in God. Third thing. God wants us to trust in Him and not seek the comforts of this world. One of the things that is, was most challenging, I've only spoken about this theme twice. This is the second time. The first time I spoke it was, it was in the United States. And I experienced something extraordinary when I was there. I was standing before this big church and I felt safer living in Juarez than I was standing before them in the United States. And I had to tell them that. I said, "Brothers, I feel safe in what is, because the worst thing that could happen to me is that I can get killed, but you live in a world filled of comfort and ease, and your hearts and your souls, you may not be taking care of them, because it's easier to be in adversity than it is when you're in prosperity." And I remembered that we had gone at that time. We'd gone through a series in Genesis, and we studied the life of Lot, Abraham, and Lot. You know, Lot was Abraham's nephew, and it came to a point where God was prospering both of them in the in the desert, and they, their, uh, the shepherds started fighting each other because of grazing rights. Hey, your your sheep are eating my grass, and you can't move over there, and. You know, so Abraham made a decision, said, Lot, why don't we just choose which direction we go? You choose one direction, I'll go the opposite direction. So Lot took took a look and he saw the valley of the Jordan, which was very green and beautiful and prosperous. You know, and Lot said, well, you want me to choose first? Yeah, well, I'm going to choose over here. You know, it is nice. The Bible says it was so nice, it looked like the Garden of Eden. Eden. And it was prosperous like Egypt. So Lot pitched his tents towards the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Eventually, Lot became part of the society there, moved into the city, (laughs) raised a family there, gave his daughters to be married to men from Sodom. Abraham had to go the other direction, which was the desert. There's animals, coyotes, wolves, lions, thieves, drought, uh, tumbleweeds, and all that stuff, you know, in the desert. Little grass. They had to dig holes to get to the water. To, you know, they had to take the water out of the wells to give it to the sheep. But God wanted Abraham there to keep him safe. Isn't that amazing? You know, when when the... People of Israel were walking out of Egypt going towards the promised land. God says in the book of Deuteronomy that the people wandered for 40 years because He wanted them safe, prepared 40 years in the desert to prepare them to go into the prosperity land, which was dangerous. So He trained them for 40 years. Before Abraham's family went into Egypt, they spent a generation in the desert. What happened with Lot? He lost everything. He lost his family. Lost his children. And one of the things that grieves me most now that I'm a granddad is that his own grandchildren were a reminder of the immorality of his own daughters constant reminder. He couldn't see his grandchildren with joy because he fathered his own grandchildren. Everything was taken from Lot when he chose the Valley of the Jordan. So being in adversity isn't bad because what is more dangerous... I lived this one time with my wife. We went to a conference, and when we went to the airport, they had bumped us out off our flight, and we had made reservations like two months before, and we just we had no seats, and I was I was angry. Pastors get angry at airports when they want to go home, and I said to the lady, "How could this happen?" She says, well, let me see if I can fix it. And she was worried. And I said, well, you got to do something. And she was, and you know, how they type real fast and real quick. He says, okay, I can offer you two first-class tickets on the next flight home. Plus $200 for your next flight. I said, okay, well, I'm angry, but I'll take it. We flew first class all the way from Chicago to El Paso. We had a great time. And uh, next time I had to fly, I was back in coach. I was missing it. I was thinking, I should be, I should be over there. I like it over there. This is, this is bad. And I realized prosperity really seduces you really like it when you have it. Because when you don't have it, you notice it. Wow. You know, when you have a car, and then you have to use public transit. You know, you, you miss it really bad. When you never had a car, you, you don't miss it that much. It's, it's seducing. It's, it's snarling. It affects your heart. So God in His mercy was allowing us to see, hey, you drive a nice car, they're going to kill you for it. Everybody started trading their nice cars for old, beat-up cars. Because what, what good is a nice house if they take your kids away? Or they shoot your wife? What good is a nice car if you're going to be killed for it? See, we weren't realizing it. We were living right next to the most prosperous country in the world and we were aspiring to be that. See, that's, we don't want that. We, we want to be able to have a Christmas dinner and have everybody sitting at the table. That's joy. That's, that's prosperity. We want everybody to, to smile for a little bit and to sing a song together. That, that's good. God was being merciful, teaching us. Trust me in the adversity because that can be good for you. Don't seek the comforts of this world because if I keep them from you, that's to keep you safe. So we said, okay God, we understand that. And you know, it does work. It, it, it doesn't matter if your genes are really nice or you wear the latest shoes or something like that. It doesn't really matter. When you go through that, things that matter are very simple. The important things are the salvation of your children and just being able to together just worship and acknowledge God in your life. And that is enough. The last thing I want to talk about, this last point, and I don't even know if I'm almost... I, I'm probably over. But I want to say this. One of the things, the last thing, which is very important that we learned is that God wants us to trust Him and continue our mission. What happened is that we went into a crisis mode. We've, we figured as pastors there's this crisis in the city what we need to do we need to keep keep everybody safe together in faith let's teach them let's teach about suffering let's teach about adversity let's let's you know let's pray together let's let's just make sure everybody's in faith everybody's doing okay we went into this crisis mode and i think we did a good job but later i realized god i think I think we could have done a better job if we had kept the mission in front of us. Because, you know, God is never in a crisis mode. He doesn't have crisis. Because He controls everything. So there's never a crisis mode purpose. Or there's never a, let's put the mission on hold... Because there's crisis. When the crisis passes, we'll continue. No, his church should never be in crisis, even if there's persecution. Because his purpose is included in the persecution. So we learned this, that we we, we needed to continue then to see what God was doing so that we could respond together And what we saw that God was doing and he was looking at the nation he was looking at the city he had a purpose for the city he may be answering our prayers for revival that we've prayed for decades and this may be it so we we needed to look at it and say well what what is God seeing is he worried about his church or is he seeing something bigger so that we need to get with it we need to build a church we need to make this a a great place for people that were unbelievers and they didn't trust God to come in and find Jesus Christ themselves it wasn't about us it was bigger than us it wasn't a trial that was happening in my own personal life It was happening to the whole city. And so we needed to see things as God was seeing it. And you know, when we go through trials, we are so concentrated. We're singing this song about, um, this Matt Redman song, what was it It called? Blessed be the name when it's good and when it's shiny and when darkness comes. Darkness wasn't coming just to me or to other individuals, you know. It wasn't the cancer that that lady was happening, that was experiencing, or it wasn't that, that loss, or there wasn't that death, or there wasn't that other sickness or the loss of the job. It was the whole city involved under darkness. So we had to look and say, wait a minute, God has a nation purpose. A purpose for a whole nation, a purpose for a whole city. Our troubles were troubles because of the nation and so God was had which should have a purpose for the nation and we were part of that plan that was our mission and so one of the things that I really want to challenge you is as American Christians how aware are you that God has a purpose for your nation that involves more than a good economy? Or involves more than your you know, um, well-being here? How aware are you that involves more than the coming elections? Listen, we're, we have presidential elections in a month. We have three candidates. We, we, we... We can't vote for any of them. I mean, as Christians, we we figure, God, what what do we do here? None of these guys meet your standards. What are we going to do? So you know what we do? We pray. (laughs) Lord, we know that you can pick this guy who is totally opposed to your word and you can use him for your purpose. Or you can use this other guy who says nice things but we know the reality of his personal life and you know this guy may be from the left this guy may be from the right this guy may be from the middle this guy may be corrupt this guy can be corrupt and this guy is probably corrupt also. But we are looking at you and you have a purpose for this nation. And you know we... We elected a new governor a year ago. We didn't know if he was going to be a good guy or not. He chose an attorney general who's a God-fearing man. And we have one of the most, I, I can't say anything bad about our mayor because he's our mayor and God bless him. But he's, I mean, I would not vote for, I did not vote for him. And he hired a police chief that was a God-fearing man. First thing that police chief said, I want to meet with all the pastors in the city. And he said, I want you to pray for me. And I want you to pray for every single policeman in this city. And every month I want you, all of you guys here because I want you to talk to all the police. Every month. Because this is God's war." So, who has control? Not the politicians, not the parties. It is God. And He has a purpose for the nation. And it's not to make it the greatest nation. That's not His purpose. His purpose is to have mercy on those that repent and acknowledge Him as Lord of their lives. Mexico is going to be in that valley of decision. Next to it, guess whether the nation is going to be there? Your nation. What is God's purpose for this nation? To preserve the American way. I don't think so. God's purpose for this nation is to have mercy through repentance and faith in Him to all those that will believe and trust Him as their Savior. What is the purpose of God for this church? To be used for the blessing of this and other nations according to his plan prior to that day of judgment so I'm going to end I don't know exactly how to pray I told told Craig I I, I don't feel I got to say this I'm an American citizen I have dual citizenship but I don't feel I can pray for the United States like a real American can. But I can pray for you. I can pray for you so you will be strong and trust God and strong faith. Not, I can't say like the Juarez people, strong faith in the same God that the Juarez people are trusting in. So that God can use you for his purpose in this county, in this city. Amen? Amen. So why don't you bow your heads. Let me pray for you. Father, I do pray that you will fulfill your purpose in this city, in this nation. But I pray my brothers and sisters here can see, Lord, very wide, very high, very deep that you are at work throughout the world carrying out your purpose and sometimes that involves terrible things but in those terrible things Lord your intention is to bring grace so give them hope because many of them are aware that their country is also wicked Give them hope that you want to use them here and in other parts to fulfill that purpose of extending grace to many thousands of people. Your desire is not for people to die, Lord. Your desire is for people to be saved. So build that up in them. Strengthen that vision in them. And bless them as a church so they can carry it out. I pray in the name of our Savior who received your judgment so that we can be here enjoying your grace.
0: Amen. Thank you, Carlos. You're welcome. I'm glad you did. Yes. Thank you for. Very glad he didn't bring the sermon about how to party. I mean, that's we'll have to have you back. Uh, this was a sober message. We'll have you back for the party sermon, another time. But thank you. He asked me ahead of time, "Can a Mexican pastor say this stuff to an American church?" I didn't know what all you were going to say, but I said, "Sure, we receive it." Thank you. It was excellent. Very, very, very good. Pointing us to the Lord and pointing us to uh, our refuge in Him alone. Uh, we just live in an illusion, don't we? We just live in an illusion, but our refuge is in Jesus Christ and him alone. Whatever country we're from, whatever our background, we trust in Christ and in him alone. If you're a guest, we have a guest reception for you. It's through this door or right around the, you can go out that door and to the right, uh, and we have some cookies for you and so I'd love to tell you a little bit about the church so we'd love to meet you there if you'd like to come to the guest reception and uh, pray you have a wonderful holiday weekend man I just don't want to take anything for granted huh? and I uh, just want to spend the weekend uh, after hearing that I want to spend a weekend with fresh eyes thanking God for simple things like sitting around the table with the family and a smoking barbecue in the backyard and uh, that sort of thing the simple things so have a simple celebration, thanking God for the right stuff um, and not leaning on the wrong stuff uh, this weekend. Um, so, uh, God bless you. Have a wonderful weekend. Thank you again, Carlos, Be around. If you'd like to meet him, uh, please do. Uh, you are dismissed. God bless you. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.